0: Welcome, market participants, to another Three Things in Credit. I'm Van Hesser, Chief Strategist at KBRA. Each week, we bring you three things impacting credit markets that we think you should know about. Bloomberg talking head Jonathan Farrow said this week, quote, there's a ton of confusion about what's going on, unquote. Sounds like the perfect lead-in to three things. Let's get started. This week, our three things are... One. A Wall Street Journal article is titled Delta Variant Isn't Expected to Dent Robust U.S. Recovery. We're not so sure that's the case. It's worth discussing. Two, a number of useful proxies for economic growth have turned over. We'll explore. And three, the unemployment rate has fallen to 5.9%. If I told you the real rate is 8.7%, would you feel differently? What if the Fed did? by the way, they have. We'll explain. All right, let's dig a bit deeper. So we were struck by the Wall Street Journal's story examining the threat of the Delta variant to the economy. Having watched outbreaks in places that we really weren't expecting them, perhaps naively, such as the UK, Australia, Israel, and Netherlands, to name but a few, it's by no means a stretch to expect something similar here in the US, and now we have it. The variant accounts for 83% of new COVID cases in the U.S. and has driven the seven-day moving average case count 200% higher over the past month to 36,000, or back to April levels. Hospitalizations and deaths, while quite low compared to the peaks, have turned higher once again. And with vaccination rates flattening out well below where scientists think herd immunity is reached, it is becoming clear that COVID is not going away anytime soon. And 10% of investors in B of A's June Global Fund Manager Survey identify COVID-19 as the biggest risk they see. But let's focus on the economic impact of this story. The journal piece says many economists are maintaining forecasts due to expectations of steady hiring and continued spending, and Americans' desire to travel and socialize. Okay, all that makes sense, but the devil's in the details. Here's how we would think about it and we respectfully disagree with those that don't see an impact. Here's what we know. One, many do not believe this is just a bad flu, although clearly many do. The fearful point to the experience of long-haulers, the estimated 10% of COVID-infected people that have symptoms lasting weeks or months with things like loss of taste, loss of hair, as well as persistent body aches and fatigue. And these symptoms are showing up in the young, This will influence many to self-police their own behavior and choices. Again, we've learned to live with this. And that means expecting less travel and leisure activities and more work and live from home. In the aggregate, that's an economic drag. Two, there is a risk to the efficacy of existing vaccines to the variant. According to the New York Times, a new study by Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, one caveat, it has yet to be peer-reviewed, But this study suggests that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is much less effective against the Delta and Lambda variants than the original virus. That story is getting out there and driving more conservative behavior from the 13 million people that have gotten the J&J jab. Three, the new school year is one month away. It just might be wishful thinking that this is all going to settle down by then. That means, in some places, more virtual school, more parents having to stay home to watch over kids, etc., Now, it is unlikely to be as disruptive as was the case a year ago, as we've come a long way in terms of neutralizing the effects of COVID via vaccines, and the pushback against lockdown now is formidable. But that doesn't mean we will be fully back to normal by September. That, too, will create economic drag. And four, the variants are hitting the unvaccinated population particularly hard. Today, only 56% of Americans ages 12 and up are vaccinated. That's going to keep this story alive. And that, too, will result in economic drag. And remember, all of this will take place amidst what we are calling the Great Deceleration, right? the running off of stimulus that will cause real GDP to normalize from an expected 9% in Q2 2021 to 2.3% by year-end 2022. In other words, adding this to the fading away of stimulus is not going to make anyone feel better. That's. Is economic drag. All right, on to our second thing rolling over. That's what has happened to a number of key economic and market indicators, introducing much needed balance into the roaring 20s slash inflation dominated chatter we've been stuck in for some time now. But Let's start with what's going on in stocks. Here, credit markets are less concerned with value versus growth or US versus Europe. We're looking at breadth. And for that, in the US, let's look at the small caps, the Russell 2000 which historically and intuitively are well correlated with the growth phase of the economic cycle. So how has the Russell 2000 performed? Well, it peaked back in March and is down 5% since then. For global growth, let's check in on the MSCI Emerging Markets Index, which peaked in February and is down more than 9% since. Chinese stocks? The CSI 300 peaked in February and is down 11% since. Closer to home, Dow Transports peaked in May and is down 8% since. Commodities. Well, the CRB All Commodities Index peaked a little over a month ago and has flattened out more recently. Copper peaked in May and is down 10% since. And let's not even bring up what's happened to rates. Wait a minute. Maybe all of that is what happened to rates. The Morgan Stanley Investment Management Chief Global Strategist Rashir Sharma weighed in on the slowing growth topic this week and with an editorial in the FT, noting that the two economic superpowers, the U.S. and China, together accounting for just over half of global growth over the past five years, are showing meaningful cracks in their economic engines. China, as it crackdowns on its tech sector, and the U.S., as it faces a spending slowdown on both the fiscal side, as it approaches a new fiscal cliff, and on the personal side, where history suggests that massive stockpile of savings is not likely to be spent in one wild spree. All of this is quite relevant to stock and bond markets where valuations are stretched, priced for perfection in an imperfect world. And now it's clear that we are passing peak growth and peak corporate earnings. And there really are plenty of markers warning what's ahead. All right, on to our third thing, the real unemployment rate. Let's go back for a second to February of this year when Fed Chair Powell mentioned in a speech to the Economic Club of New York that the official unemployment rate, the U-3 reported each month by the BLS, materially undercounts the unemployed by misclassifying workers on a temporary layoff as non-participants and ignoring those that have left the labor force. Adjusting for these factors, the real unemployment rate he reasoned at the time was close to 10% well above the 6.3% in January reported by the BLS. That was no small matter. Promoting maximum employment is half of the Fed's dual mandate, along with price stability, something that the financial markets obsess over as it holds the key to just how accommodative monetary policy will be. Well, in the latest monetary policy report published by the Fed July 9th, Chair Powell continues to push the notion that the official BLS labor market statistics understate the shortfall in employment, particularly as factors related to the pandemic, appear to be weighing on participation in the labor market. His updated real unemployment rate for June is 8.7%, an improvement for sure from January's 10%, but well short of the central bank's goal of maximum employment and well above the BLS's 5.9%. Those factors related to the pandemic holding back labor participation he referenced include potential workers fearful of returning to workplaces given still too low rates of vaccination, caregiving demands, and dislocations driving an increase in the rate of retirements. With the pandemic still very much in the picture, those factors are not likely to dissipate as quickly as market participants might have hoped for as recently as a month ago. The Fed also points to expanded unemployment benefits, leading to a lower sense of urgency for displaced workers to find new jobs. Many states have moved to curtail those expanded benefits before their expiration in September, so this has a more defined timetable than the others mentioned. In addition to the factors listed above, we've talked on the podcast about the skills mismatch exacerbated by the pandemic, where the technology pull forward has created jobs the current labor force cannot sufficiently fill. The Fed acknowledges as much, commenting that the post-pandemic labor market and the characteristics of maximum employment may well be different from those of early 2020. Again, risks to the downside economically Although if you were in the camp of the longer the Fed stays highly dovish, the better off we'll be, you'll take comfort in the fact that there remains significant slack in the labor market. So there you have it. Three things in credit. One, the spread of the Delta variant is keeping the pandemic on the radar of investors, and we believe it is impacting economic behavior. Two, a number of useful proxies for economic growth have turned over. It's worth considering as you think through the second half. And three, the unemployment rate has fallen to 5.9%. But if I told you the real rate is 8.7%, you might feel a bit different. And when the Fed says it, you should. There remains considerable slack in the labor market. So as always, thanks for joining us don't forget to check in on KBRA.com for our latest rating reports and research. See you next week.